Our text this evening is found in the book of Psalms. I ask you to turn with me to Psalm 32, and I would direct your attention to verse 5. Psalm 32 and verse 5. And I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. This is a lovely psalm, and it opens on a very uh, bright note. You'll note the first word, blessed. Blessed is he, verse 2. Blessed is the man. Here is a description of exquisite happiness, contentment, satisfaction, delight, joy, true spiritual blessedness. And it is blessedness derived from relief. The relief of a conscience that has been loaded with the weight of sin. You'll notice the language he speaks of being forgiven. He speaks of sins being covered. He speaks of sins not being imputed to the blessed man. And then he goes on, and after stating that in verses 1 and 2, he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to recount some of the experience that has led to this condition of blessedness. And he describes how he was overwhelmingly burdened, how he was broken, his bones were, were waxing old, and it was as if all of the moisture in his body was being sapped, sucked out of him, and, and dried up. He says, this was my condition. I was here in a condition where I had my sins and it was me and my sins, and I was rotting away, as it were. And that leads to verse 5. You'll notice that he goes from a shut mouth, in verse 3, speaks of being silent, to an open mouth, in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Here his sins had been held in. His sins had been bottled up within him, and he's brought to take those sins and to pour them out into the open before the Lord to confess them. And so he does so. And then it goes on in verse 6, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. And so you can, you can think, for example, of a, a, a severe infection scabbed over and it's inflamed and it's itchy and and so on and there are times when you have to actually open it up you have to take a scalpel or something and lance that infection in order to cleanse it in order to get the the festering ooze and pus out and to cleanse it and wash it in order that it might be healed and there's something of that that's being described here the ease of conscience that has come from under the load of sin to the, to the confession of sin. And really the whole psalm carries the weight of this so that it, it ends on a, a high point. There's a contrast between verses 10 and 11. Many sorrows, so here's more sorrow, shall be to the wicked. But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy 
All ye that are upright in heart. It began on a, on a bright note. It, it ends on a note of triumph and of, of joy and of blessing and so on. But we focus our attention this evening on the middle of this, on, on verse 5, the turning point that comes after verses 3 and 4. In our Westminster Confession, in chapter 15, paragraph 5, we read these words. It says, Men ought not to content, content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly, of his particular sins particularly. And this is really what the penitential psalms, and there's many, many of them, whole psalms, and in other cases, portions of psalms, convey to us the same sort of theme, this emphasis on confessing sins, particular sins, particularly. So we're going to note three things uh, this evening. First of all, we begin broadly with the confession of sin. So first of all, the confession of sin. You'll note in, in verse 5, we have three words for sin. There's the word sin, which we're familiar with. There's the word iniquity, and there is the word transgression. The Bible has multiple words, both in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament, uh, for the word sin. And in the Hebrew, uh, some of these words have different connotations and almost are picturesque for us. You know, there's one picture of sin is the idea of missing the mark. So you have children a target with a bullseye, you have a bow and arrow, you pull back the bow or you're firing a firearm and you miss the mark altogether, right? You, you haven't hit the target that the Lord's given. The target is his law. This is what he's required us to do. And we've gone off from it. Another picture that's given to us is the difference between crookedness, crooked ways and straight ways. So instead of walking straight, straight and narrow, along the law and word of God, instead we are going off of that, right? We're walking in a crooked pattern. Another picture that's given to us is that of boundaries. So the Lord sets a boundary. He says this far and, and no further. And he, he contains us within his revealed will on how we're to think and live and act and so on and so forth. And we transgress those boundaries. We cross over them, right? We trespass. We we actually break, as it were, out of the limits that the Lord has given to us. Each of these are pictures for, for what sin is like. Right? They all convey something to us. But we recognize that at its heart, sin is the antithesis of the very being, nature, character of God. Sin is the polar opposite. It is set in juxtaposition the opposite antithesis of all that God is, and therefore it is incompatible with acceptance before God. Sin is incompatible with access into his favorable presence. And it is for that reason and many others that repentance is absolutely necessary, that, that the preaching of repentance is necessary wherever and whenever the gospel is truly preached. We see that in the opening of the New Testament. John goes out, John the Baptist, preaching repentance. We see it in Jesus' ministry. He goes out preaching repentance as well, highlighting this important truth that we must repent of our sins. But we recognize that repentance is itself a gospel grace. We know that faith is a gift of God in the book of Acts, two places, and elsewhere in the epistles. 
Repentance is also referred to in, in like fashion. It is a gospel grace. It is when a sinner uh, sees and, and senses the evil of their own sin as contrary, contrary to God's nature, contrary to God's law, really contrary to all that is good, and who simultaneously sees Christ's mercy to penitent sinners who come to him and who therefore grieves over their sin and hates it and turns from their sin to God with all of the fruit of new obedience that flow from that. This is repentance, and it is necessary. That is to say, there is no pardon, there is no forgiveness without it. Without repentance, there is no pardon or forgiveness. However, we must likewise emphasize that it is not our repentance that earns our pardon. Our repentance does not earn it. Our, our repentance does not serve as some sort of satisfaction for our, our sin. Right? That would be papal legality, wouldn't it? Where they assign different deeds of, of penitence and so on in order to uh, address uh, their lack before the Lord and so on. No, we recognize and must recognize that it is repentance is an act of God's free grace. It is the Lord graciously at work in, in a soul. And so repentance is important because of the presence of sin and the nature of sin. But here in our passage, it's speaking about the confession of sin. And I've made this point before. Confession and repentance are not the same thing. People often make this mistake, and you hear it in, in normal conversation, and it's, it's okay, we understand, we take people where they're at and so on, and people don't necessarily mean to make this mistake, but they'll say, I've repented of this sin because they've acknowledged that it's a sin. Right? Those are not the same thing. Actually, confession is a component, one component of repentance. It is not equivalent to repentance. It is a component of it. And so you'll notice the language here in, in verse 5. It's, he, he says, first of all, I acknowledge my sin. So this is an aspect of what confession is. To acknowledge it is to own it. It's to not only see it and recognize it, but to actually own it for what it is. To acknowledge it without qualifications and without excuses about why it is that we've sinned, without you know, blame shifting and, and attributing the cause to, to someone else or to somewhere else, but rather acknowledging it, taking hold of it as, as our own. Another way that he describes confession is he says, mine iniquity have I not hid. So I, I haven't hidden it. And that can take place by ignoring it, looking the other way. It can take place by redefining it. You can hide it by, under the cover of, of, of redefining it as something else. Or we can just flat out cover it up. No, he says, I have not hid it. Instead, he's saying, in confessing sin, I am exposing my soul to the Lord. 
I'm bringing what is hidden deep inside. I'm bringing it outside. I'm bringing it out into the light. I'm bringing it before the Lord and setting it before his gaze so that I'm looking upon it and he's looking upon it for what it is at the same time. And then he uses the word uh, confess as well. I will confess my transgression. You'll remember many of you that confession means to say the same as, right? So when we confess sin, we are saying the same as God says about our sin. I've said this before, but when we speak of the Westminster Confession of Faith, right, we're saying that that this summary and articulation of truth is saying what God says in the Bible. So this is a confession of faith. It's saying what God says about the Christian faith, what the Bible teaches us about the Christian faith. And so confession is saying the same as. So we're, we're not coming to our sins with our own ideas and our own intuition or our own uh, perspectives but we're coming with God's mind, God's will, God's word, God's eye, and we're describing it as God describes it. We're saying the same as he says about it. That's to confess our, our sin. And you'll, you'll notice almost immediately that confession, therefore, is not the same thing as the conviction of sin. It's not the same thing as the conviction of sin. Conviction of sin is consciousness that what we've done is wrong, that it's sin. And there are many people who stop there. And so they're convicted, right? Oh, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have thought that, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have felt that. And they think, oh, I'm better. And now they move on, right? Just because they've been convicted, they felt the conviction of sin, but never gone on to confess it, to confess that sin. We can come short with conviction only and without confession, right? Conviction is demonstrating that our conscience is awake. Our conscience is alert. Where Our conscience is sensitive. Our conscience is recognizing what's happened. But my friends, we must go on to confess it, to acknowledge it before the Lord, to say what he says about our sin to him and before him. And in all of this, acknowledging it, not hiding it, confessing it, in all of this, there is a, there's clearly a God-centeredness in the confession of sin, right? There's a God-consciousness in the confession of sin. And you see it even in our text because he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Later on, I, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, unto Jehovah. And so there's a consciousness. It's the Lord that we're dealing with in the confession of sin. It's him that we're coming before. It is him that we are grappling with our own souls before. It is to him that we are acknowledging our sins. In this God-centeredness, there's a sense that our sin is before him. All of our sins were committed before his all-seeing eye. The sins that we carry with us are before him, and therefore we confess our sins to him. But furthermore, all of our sins are against him. 
All of our sins are actually against him. We may sin against our neighbor, family member, fellow believer, someone at work, whatever else. They may be involved, but ultimately our sin is against the Lord. You know well, Psalm 51, David, in the aftermath of his sins regarding Uriah and Bathsheba, says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Yes. Had he sinned against Uriah? Yes. Had he sinned against the nation? Yes. Had he sinned against his wives? Yes. Had he sinned against other people? Sure. But against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. In other words, it's the Lord who's looming large. Not man. Not, not, not us as men. Not others. It's the Lord who's looming large in the confession of sin. And so we begin with the confession of sin. For those who are unconverted, this is something that has to be pressed home because the natural man left to themselves doesn't think about sin at all like God thinks about sin because they don't think about God as he truly is. And so sin is, is naturally redefined or excused or shifted with blame to to others and so on and we speak of weakness and foibles and mistakes and so on and so forth without ever grasping the fact that it is sin and the lord comes to us in the gospel and he says you are a sinner you are a sinner you have a sinful nature it is your penchant and inclination to sin the things you think and do and 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 feel and your ambitions and attitudes and motivations and all these things are sinful. They're against God. They're in violations of his law. They are in contradiction to the very being of the one who has, has created you. And what, is the, what does God do? He sends his Holy Spirit, and the Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. We need to see our desperate need. We need to see our deplorable circumstances and being aroused and awakened, my friend, to see these things for what they are, as God says, in reality, to then be put in a position to bring them to him and to say, all that thou hast said is true. Everything that's been declared against me is absolutely true. Everything that has been said about the things I've done and been are true. This is reality. We have to bring those, as we'll hear more in a moment, to the Lord himself. But it's true not only for the unconverted, it's true for the believer. For the believer, this is your bread and butter, right? This is, the, this is not something that a person does when they first come to Christ only. This is something that a believer does all day, every day, week after month after year after decade for the entirety of their life. As long as we are sinning, we are to be confessing sin. Repentance is a living part of the bread and butter of the Christian life. And so we have confession of sin. But then secondly, confession of particular sins. So confession of particular sins. He says here in verse 5, Mine iniquity have I not hid. I will can confess my transgressions. I will confess my transgressions. Now, it's helpful here, I think, to begin, first of all, 
with regards to man, with regards to our fellow human beings. We recognize that there are distinctions. There's a distinction between private sins and public sins. And we're talking about confessing our sins to others, which is also appropriate. We distinguish between private sins and, and pub public sins, right? Private sins are confessed privately. Public sins are confessed publicly, right? It's, it's, it's inappropriate to make, it, well, it's often inappropriate to make what is private public because that then extends the scandal and the dishonor that is brought, the disrepute that is brought to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think by way of parallel uh, in terms of church discipline, right? There, not all sins are censurable, but even censurable sins, there's a difference between private censure and public censure. There are some, some cases of church discipline where the sin is of such a nature that it needs to be disciplined, it's entirely private, and it is disciplined privately and not publicly. It's not spoken abroad or proclaimed publicly to, to the congregation. And there are other sins which are of a public nature and require public censure in order to preserve the glory of Jesus Christ and the well-being of God's people and the purity of the gospel and so on and so forth. And there are, obviously, there are nuances with regards to some of these distinctions. There are some private sins that are so heinous in nature that they have to be confronted publicly as well. But you see the point here. And it, it trickles down into our practice, doesn't it? In, in public prayer, for example, we, we, we are praying corporately. And, and this is why we use pronouns like we and our and so on, right? Because the person who's leading in prayer is actually carrying the congregation with them. We're, we're praying together before the throne of grace. And so we don't say I and me and my, and well, that's something we do in our private prayers, right? But here in, in, in the public assembly, it's everyone is to be joining in, in the prayer. You're not praying by yourself with others listening in. Everyone is praying together. And so when you think in terms of the confession of sin in, in public prayer, right, we, we tend to pray with more generally, more generally in the sense that it would be entirely inappropriate for you to say, you know, to confess the sin of having, you know, bitter thoughts against, you know, a brother that's sitting two pews behind you in a public prayer. That's, that's absolutely unseemly and dishonoring to the Lord. It's entirely inappropriate or to come and start speaking about the trouble that you're personally having with your, your children that day or, or something else. That's not humble. It's not humble at all. Instead, we're to be confessing sins corporately. And so we, we may speak of categories more generally, or we may speak of specific sins that everyone can join in and, 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 and participate in. That's the point, right? So there's a difference between private sins and, and public sins. And with regards to the confession of sin, not only in, in prayer, you know, there'll be instances where you sin against a brother. You go to that brother or sister and you can acknowledge your sin. You confess your sin to them and you ask them to forgive you. You wouldn't necessarily go and, you know, announce that to, to the whole world, right? That's something that took place between the two of you and it's to be resolved between uh, the two of you as God uh, enables you and so on. 
And so there's a distinction between private sins and public sins when it comes to man, when we're dealing with our fellow men in corporate prayer together, in our interactions with one another, and so on. But regarding God, there are no such limitations. All of our sins are chiefly against him. And therefore, as our confession is saying, we're not to be content only with general confession of sins, though that's also appropriate, but it is our duty to confess our particular sins particularly. And so when it comes to the Lord, there is to be specificity in our confession of sin. Well, why is that? Well, among, among other reasons, it's because you don't just sin generally. You don't just sin generally. Well, I'm, I'm generally sinful, Lord. No. You, you don't sin generally, and so you don't confess sin generally. You confess specific instances of sin. After all, you know, part of what lies behind this, right, the many, many, many people will confess that they're sinners. If you go to someone and say, yeah, do you ever do anything wrong? You know, have you, have you ever sinned, ever had a bad thought, ever said something you shouldn't have said, so on and so forth? Many people are going to say, yes, sure, I'm a sinner, right? Generally, I'm a sinner. But they're not anywhere near ready to grapple with the reality of their condition, dealing with the specific sins in their, in their particular life. But when we confess, when we make confession of particular sins, it brings home the charge against us, right? It brings to our bosom, to the quick, to the conscience. And it, it, it enables us to, 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 to see clearly and to feel keenly. But it also begins to reveal the number of sins, right? You, you say, you know, someone shoots off confetti in a room. You say, oh, wow, we've got we to pick up the confetti. You know, it's just confetti generally. No, you need to go pick up every single piece of confetti. Well, now, that, now we're talking about something else. You're on your hands and knees and you're picking up one little piece of confetti after another and so on and so forth. That's totally different, isn't it? When it comes to the confession of our sins, we're brought to see how innumerable they are, how vast they are. We're, we're grappling with the reality, right? It's revealing the heinousness of our sins. We can't just pass it off as, uh, uh, you know, I sinned generally, I've sinned this week, or something else, and it's vague. But rather, we begin to feel the weight of it, the seriousness of it, the sobriety of it, right? The, the sorrow for it when it is specific, not sloughing it off with a broad sweep. That's an insult. It's an insult to the Almighty. It's an insult to the Lord Himself. I mean, it would be an insult even to your friend. You did something, you know, terrible, said something terrible to your friend that really hurt them and was wrong and damaging to them. You say, well, you know, if you say, you know, it wasn't good. Uh, you know, what I, what I did wasn't good. It's not very helpful, is it? You go to your friend and say, you know, what I said was wrong, that it was, it was, it was sinful. It was, it was being angry, I was proud, I was being belligerent, I was, you know, you begin to specify what you mean, what exactly was it that you did wrong. But how much more when it comes to the Lord, right? This is an affront to Him to deal with, with a broad brush. There's something that is far more personal, isn't it, when we're, 
when we're confessing particular sins particularly. It's personal, not generic. And you can think for the believer the ways in which this is an, a tremendous aid to sanctification, right? Because it's identifying specific areas of needed growth in our Christian life. You know, the specific types of temptations, internal or external, that we have tended to cave in, under. It aids us in terms of mortification, the mortification of sin, the killing of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the mortification of particular sins in our life that is needed. The Lord needs, we need the Lord to come and work in these specific ways in which pride is being worked out and selfishness and, and unbelief and lust and anger and greed and bitterness and whatever else, the specific areas in which these things are being found in our life. It's that that needs to be killed. And in the confession of sin, we are given help. We're given precision and clarity in exactly what it is that we're seeking the Lord's grace for, not only in pardon and in forgiveness in the first instance, but also in terms of conformity to the likeness of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I need, to, I need to say something pastorally at this point because I know it's going through some, some, some of your minds here, especially those who are, who are more sensitive and perhaps even obsessive you're thinking to yourself, well, this is an overwhelming weight. You know, I need to confess my particular sins particularly. You know, I get to the end of the day, what if I've missed some? What if, what if, what if there's sins I, I, I missed? I, I, I didn't, I failed to confess the, those sins before the Lord. Or what if I've forgotten some? I can't even remember, you know, what, what exactly has happened and so on. And there are some of you that will become paralyzed. You'll be paralyzed under it. Well, let me remind you of a few things here that would be helpful, I think, in that condition. First of all, remember what I said earlier. Confession does not atone for sin. Christ does. Your confession is not what atones for sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who atones for sin. Secondly, you can't know every sin. It is humanly impossible for you to know every sin. Your sins are more than the hairs upon your head. And there are even categories of sin. For example, sins of ignorance. You're ignorant. You're, you're, you're not, how can you be aware of, of sins of, of ignorance before they're exposed and, and made known to you and so on? No. What you need to understand is it's not that not every sin, but more accurately, every known sin. We're to confess every known, known sin. And so the point is that when we're engaged in self-examination or we're engaged before the Lord in the review of what's happened in a situation or in the review of a day or whatever else, and we're working things out before the Lord in prayer, as the Lord brings to mind and enables you to see ways and instances in which you've sinned, you are to bring them to him 
confessing them as sin. Right? The, the problem, the real problem, is not where, where you thought, oh no, what if I've missed something or what if I've forgotten something. Here's where the problem lies. The problem lies in the fact that the Lord reveals sins that you won't own and won't confess. That's the problem. That's the risk. That's the danger. Is the Lord revealing sins in our life that you won't own and confess, but rather cover or excuse or ignore? And so we're to be confessing particular sins. But then thirdly, the cleansing of sin. This is actually going to reinforce this whole point about specificity. The cleansing of sin. He says at the end of verse 5, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. The believer desires and Christ supplies pardon for particular sins. Indeed, he provides forgiveness for all of the believer's sins. And that brings us back to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for all of the particular sins of all of his elect people. He died for all of the particular sins of his elect people. Why? Because if one single sin was left unatoned for, you would be damned for eternity. And so in his atoning sacrifice, he made satisfaction for every specific particular sin that there is, right? There is a full and free pardon that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that we've confessed, the things we've never known to confess, the things we were never aware of, the things that we never saw, everything, right? Here is a full and free pardon. Here is a demonstration of the infinite, eternal love of God the Father, of God the Son, of God the Holy Ghost, right? The love of God in stooping in His mercy to redeem sinners in such a way that everything is cleansed and everything is addressed. What does that do? I mean, to see the significance of this triune love, it deepens our sorrow for sin. When we begin to get a, a sight of the overwhelming love of God in Christ Jesus, when we begin to get a glimpse of the depths of how much he has loved and does love and continues to love, when we have a sight of Christ, that melts our cold hearts. It melts our cold hearts. You know, when we're, we're, we find ourselves cold, you think, well, I need to confess our sins. One thing we can do that's helpful is to go to the law. Right? We look in the larger catechism and the exposition of the Ten Commandments and we begin to go through because it helps tease out and bring to the surface the specifics that can be applied to our circumstances and so on. That is an important work within the Christian life. But the thing that melts the heart more than anything is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you think after all of this overwhelming, enormous, expansive love, enduring unconditional love of God, how is it that I have sinned against such love? What ingratitude 
What ugliness that I've been so dismissive and so self-interested and so careless when it comes to his honor and his glory. How have I sinned against such great love as this? It melts the heart of the Christian. Well, the Lord promises and the Lord always pardons the sins that are brought to him. For some of you, you think of your sin as an impediment to coming to Christ. There are unconverted people who think, my sin is so great, I've done all these things, this is my track record, my history, all this enormous. I deserve to be damned. You see it as an impediment, but the believer finds the same thing in their legal hearts. And the believer sees the love of God and sees the cross of Christ and sees the holiness of the law and sees all these things and sees their sins and thinks, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And leaves it there and thinks I need to stay away from from the Lord because of these things. You think of sin as impediment to coming to Christ. What What does this psalm, all the psalms, the whole scripture teach you? Sin is a wonderful reason to come to Christ. It's a wonderful reason to come to Christ. You know that the Lord's mercies are plenteous and that they are enduring mercies. And you know that he is rich in mercy and you know that he has everlasting mercies and so on. But as I'm fond of reminding people, you need to also remember that the Lord says that he delights in those who hope in mercy. That when we come with our sin, hoping for mercy, we delight the Lord. He's delighted to see sinners coming, bringing their sins with them to him, to acknowledge him, to acknowledge them for what they are, for what he says they are, for our guilt, and shame, and inexcusableness, and to empty it all before him and to expose ourselves before him. The Lord delights in that. You'll notice here that the psalmist says, and thou forgavest, past tense, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. What does that mean? The psalmist knew that the Lord had forgiven him. He knew that the Lord had forgiven him. And the point is, you can know that the Lord has forgiven you. You can know that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know your sin for what it is. You know what God says about that sin. You know that you've owned it. You know that you've come and confessed it before him. You know that only the Lord Jesus Christ can cleanse it. You can know that the Lord has indeed forgiven it, that he's buried it, that he's washed it away, that it's gone, that it is no longer visible before him. Well, my friends, that knowledge which we can have in Christ Jesus, that knowledge brings joy. It brings tremendous joy. 
It makes you say things like, blessed is he, blessed is the man whom the Lord's forgiven. This is exquisite happiness. This is delight. This is wonderful. This, is, this brings cheer and light and, and joy. And that fuels the other components of repentance. That joy actually fuels the other components of, of, of repentance and, and is used by God to bring forth some of the fruit of repentance unto new obedience. This joy does. The experience of the grief when dealing with the particularity of sin, yes, it intensifies our hatred for sin. Confessing them specifically, it intensifies our hatred. It causes sin to lose its sweetness when we're having to deal with them individually. Makes them bitter to us, distasteful to us. But the sight of the love of Christ in mercy intensifies our love for him. It intensifies our desire to glorify him. It intensifies our desire to please him in gratitude. When the Lord lifts the burden, when he eases the conscience, when he cleanses the heart, when he pardons the guilt, when he grants mercy, the joy that the, that the Christian experiences is fuel that intensifies their love for him and their desire to do anything and everything they can to glorify him and to please him. This is why, you know, the, again, you have in, in David's uh, hymn of repentance, he's saying, you know, cleanse me. And he's saying, purify me. And he's saying, wash me. And he's saying, have mercy on me. And he's saying, forgive me from, from all of these sins. But you'll notice that he also says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He saw it as well. He saw what was on the other side of this. The confession of sin yields the forgiveness of sin, which yields the joy of salvation from sin, the joy of the Lord. Right? It gives, it gives a bounce in our step. Children, you've no doubt been you've carried groceries or you've, you've been backpacking and you, you have like a heavy weight on your back. You have all sorts of stuff you've piled in there for a couple days. You've gone out into the mountains of South Carolina and there are these steep hills, you know, you're, you're, you're sweating and huffing and puffing and climbing these hills and you're, you know, it's like all your muscles are, 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 are working as hard as they can and so on and so forth. The fact is that if you, if you didn't have that pack on, you would have climbed that hill and found it arduous. But you put the pack on, and it became, that extra weight made it all the more arduous. But if you take the pack off after you get to the top and do it again, you would go up that hill bounding. You would feel light as a feather. You would find the steps easy comparatively to get up. Why? Well, physiologically, your central nervous system is kicked in after carrying the heavy weight, and so your body's primed, and then you're, you're going up easier. There are other things, too, probably physiologically, for why that's the case. But you see the point. The Christian is, has a sense of the conviction of sin and the weight of it, which is confessed before the Lord, forgiven by the Lord. It puts bounce in the Christian step. There's a lightness. There's a joy that comes from it. I mean, this is why we need to hear and why we need to continually refer, uh, reaffirm 
that the message of repentance is never negative. People say, I don't want to hear about repentance. You know, we have too many people preaching about repentance. This is the absolute opposite, right? When you, when you think about repentance, when you hear about repentance, you should be thinking liberating. This is a liberating doctrine. That, that repentance is running to the light. That re- repentance is turning from sin with all of its misery and grief to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And so when a person sees, oh, there's going to be a sermon on repentance, rather than feeling, oh, well, okay, we've got a sermon on repentance, this is going to be heavy, you should hear, there's going to be a sermon on repentance, it should give you warm feelings inside. There should be something brightening in your, in your own soul. Because you see repentance for what it is, as God has called. As the Bible says, and even as the chapter in our confession is, is entitled, it is repentance unto life. That's what it is. It's repentance unto life. This is liberating. This is light. This is blessing. This is wonderful. We should be delighted. And we should you know, perish the thought, be grieved over the thought that, that, that repentance would ever fall out of fashion, as it were, in any churches that we hold, hold dear Because when we're thinking biblically, we recognize that the lack of repentance, or in this particular case, the lack of the confession of sin is sorrow heaped upon sorrow, bottling up sorrow, which is why it ends that way. Verse 10, many sorrows, many sorrows. He's talking about the blessed man. He's talking about the one who's exquisitely happy. But he says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. And in contrast, for the Lord's people, confession leads to compounded joy. Confession leads to compounded joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Confession of sin is indispensable to spiritual well-being, to the Christian life. Confessing particular sins is all the more indispensable to the Christian life. We need to be bringing reality check to our souls and living in a God-conscious way, walking in the fear of the Lord and the consolation of the Holy Spirit, His way, coming to the Lord with our particular sins and seeking the pardon and cleansing that he has promised and so abundantly provides. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we bow down before thy majesty and confess that thou art glorious, thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. We confess, O Lord, how rank and evil and heinous sin is that we know but a little of it. Lord, teach us, we pray, rather than to keep our sins to ourselves. Teach us, O Lord, to unburden our hearts and to roll them out and to expose them and to bring them before Thee, to acknowledge them for all that they are, 
to turn from them to the Lord Jesus Christ in confidence of his mercy and to receive the full and free pardon that is found in him and in him alone. O Lord, multiply thy blessing on these things, we ask for